Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in African American Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Omari Averett Phillips, your host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Dr. Matsya Malazzo about her new book, Colorblind Tools, Global Technologies of Racial Power. Dr. Malazzo, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for inviting me. I'm very happy to be here. We're very happy to have you. Uh, And I wonder if you could just begin the interview just by telling us just a little bit about yourself. Yeah, so I was born in a Sicilian town called Piazza Merina, just because it was where the closest hospital was. But I'm from a small village uh, called San Cono, a rural community that has shrunk to about 2,500 people right now. Uh, But I grew up in Germany. My parents moved there for work. Um, My dad was working in construction back then. My mother was an Italian elementary school teacher. yeah, I, I guess it was a lot of back and forth, moving back to Italy and then going back to Germany again with my family where I started university. Um, yeah, and it was, you know, the second year of my undergrad program. Um, I was studying English, Spanish and French. In my second year, I studied abroad in the United States, and I think that was kind of a, you know, a turning point for my research that I would say led me where I am, where I am today. Yeah. Wonderful. And how did you come to this specific project? Yeah. So, you know, growing up in Germany and Italy, my interest in racism already, you know, it it goes back to my childhood. And it specifically started with a concern with the Jewish Holocaust. You know, initially from the typically white European perspective of asking yourself, how could this happen here? Um, And, uh, you know, I was reading a lot of Auschwitz literature and a friend of mine, uh, a classmate, brought Hitler's Mein Kampf to school one day, which is, you know, readily available in Italy everywhere. And I read the book and I think I can trace kind of my interest in trying to understand white supremacist discourse, maybe to that moment. But then it was later, my first year in college in Germany, um, in a course I read until it was Borderlands. And then um, I spent a year at the University of Texas at Austin where, you know, I did Chicana studies and I took courses in race and ethnic relations and racism became a you know, a kind of recurrent concern, but it really became the central concern during my PhD program. Um, And then, you know, there was the academic interest and also propelled by one, like a certain discomfort with racial theory that didn't really match sometimes what I was seeing in the archives and also what I was seeing around me. And then this, you know, central to my book is a concern with racial disavowal, right? The disavowal and denialism of racism, 
which was simply the experience everywhere around me, right? And still is. Um, I was just in Sicily a few weeks ago and I visited a friend and I hadn't seen her parents since high school. We were, you know, in the same classroom. And, uh, you know, they asked me a few questions and, you know, the topic racism came up uh, because, you know, I said, you know, one reason why I found it difficult to live in the U.S. is, you know, the police violence, which wasn't directed against me, but, you know, is, is, is a reality that black people face every day. And, um, you know, I'm not sure if I want my partner to live there and that kind of conversation. And they immediately went, they had never been to the States, but, you know, they had more knowledge apparently than, than, than me and immediately proceeded to say that, that that is not true. And that's so racial disavowal has always been a, a thing that, you know, me being white and being around white people um, was exposed to. And it became also a central concern of my research at some point. And it was also thanks to mentors, of course, that I managed to, to do this work, especially, you know, my dissertation committee, the project started as a dissertation much earlier, even some of it as a, as a master's project. But, you know, uh, scholars like Carl Gutierrez-Jones, George Lipschitz, Francisco Lomeli, Abdulia Mohammed, but also people who were not directly on my committee and really inspired me and, you know, guided me like Harry Garuba, Roberto Strongman, and many others for whom I'm grateful. And I don't think I would be here today without my mentors. And so what was the process like for you in terms of researching this book? Yeah, so the product, so this book is like the product of, you know, many different travels, archives, and also conversations. So if you think that some of the ideas with regard to Chicano studies in, in, in the book, for example, you know, the, the seed of that was developed in my master's thesis in 2005. So it was a project 15 years in the making. So a lot of, you know, archives went into it, the Universitätsbibliothek Freiburg, I studied at the University of Freiburg, the Benson Collection at UT Austin, the Bancroft Library, but also the African Studies Library at the University of Cape Town or the Heard Libraries at Vanderbilt, but also the Afro-Brazilian Studies Institute, Ipeafro in Rio de Janeiro. So many different archives, but it was important for me to really have first-hand experience and, you know, of the countries I write about in the book, which, you know, spans Brazil, Cuba, Mexico, Panama, the U.S., South Africa, and to some extent also Italy, right, to a smaller extent. So, I visited all of the countries I write about, but I also lived in in uh, many of them. I lived in Brazil for almost a year. Uh, I lived in Mexico for a longer period of time. I spent several years in South Africa, over a decade in the U.S. And so the book, um, I think it was, you know, of course it was shaped by archives, right? It's, it, it's, it's a study of text, but it was also very much shaped by the conversations I had, the people I met, right? The organizations that I was sometimes involved in, and um, yeah, so it was very important for me to also write it in a way that is not just uh, accessible to academics, but it also kind of reflects, um, yeah, that that maybe openness uh, to some extent to you know familiarity with with different contexts, yeah. Definitely. And, and what did um, living in these places, what, what do you think that brought to how you wrote this book? 
Yeah, that's a very interesting question. Um, you know, I, I think it, it definitely, it shaped the very ideas in the book, I would say, right? It wasn't just a matter of, you know, also speaking the languages, right? Speaking Portuguese, speaking Spanish, speaking English, but also German, you know, um, Italian, like reading the texts in the original and also being able to, you know, debate some of the ideas and some of the texts with uh, some of the, you know, friends I made along the way. I just, you know, I, I actually, you know, even now I still keep learning things. I'm like, oh, if I could have put this in the book. Just recently I was speaking with some friends that used to be my roommates when I was uh, living in Brazil 2007 and we're still friends, right? So, and I was, you know, and we were talking about Ali Kamel, Now Somos Racistas, We Are Not Racist, which is a book that I uh, write about um, in, in, in my book. And um, the conversation came up and they were like, but do you know that we all had to read that book at the university? And I'm like, oh, I didn't know, you know, that might have been something that I would have, that would have come up in the book, right? Um, or for example, in chapter... Three, I talk about, um, you know, racism in the university and the school system um, in Brazil, uh, South Africa, in the United States. And I open with the protests of 2015 that shook South African universities. And, um, you know, I don't necessarily say that in the book, but I saw some of those protests myself, right? And I don't think I necessarily need to say that, but I think it does shape the way in which mm, the, the the facts are related, I suppose, in the book. Or in any case, it shaped my understanding of, um, of what, what was going on around me, right? Seeing uh, friends who uh, had to deal with depression, dropped out because of, you know, being beaten by the police and uh, being mistreated, um, things that, you know, you can't read in the newspaper because the newspaper was not reporting it. So I, I do think that even if, you know, I, I try not to kind of position myself as, as a traveler or center my, you know, my, myself uh, much in the book, although it does, I think, become clear in some cases uh, that, but I think it definitely has shaped the the writing. Wonderful. And so it's it's right in the title, right? Colorblind tools. Uh, what's the definition of colorblindness that you use for this work? I feel like sometimes it can be a bit vague or nebulous, and at, at times uh, in other works, probably that's the purpose of of this sort of like ideology. So, what's the definition of colorblindness that you sort of used for this work? Yeah. So you know, sometimes you know, I'm oh, what is your oh, you're writing on colorblindness, mm, and people look at you like how boring or how, you know, vague or how uninteresting, but I think I tried to do something a little bit different uh, from, you know, a lot of scholarship on, on colorblindness in the sense that, so the book challenges, let me just give maybe a little bit of, of context and then I provide the definition, maybe the definition then will make more sense, right? So the book challenges common sense understandings of racism and colorblindness that have become dominant in a lot of racial theory that, you know, speaks about colorblindness. So increasingly since the 1980s, US and European scholars have argued that since the end of World War II, 
um, and or and since the end of since the end of the civil rights movement, right? We have been faced with what scholars call the new racism, or also called colorblind racism, cultural racism, and a myriad of other terms that take almost a paragraph in the book, right? So the argument then is that racism has fundamentally changed, that it has moved from being overt to covert, and that white people now resort to disavowing racism, or that it has moved from being reproduced through coercion as being reproduced through hegemony. This is Howard Winant's uh, argument. Um, in the book, however, you know, I show that racism, first of all, violence remains central to the reproduction of white supremacy. And the disavowing camouflage of racism is nothing new but a structural element of racism itself, right? Which we can already find in Columbus's writings. That's where I started, 1492. So while much scholarship, especially in the social sciences, is obsessed with change, how racism has changed, I try to show continuities between the past and the present. So the term colorblindness in the book is necessarily a, a placeholder that I chose to use because I'm trying to be in conversation and also challenge a lot of the scholarship around colorblindness, right? But um, I use it not so much because I'm wedded to it, but because I'm trying to show the violence of the usage of the term, right? What does it mean even to be colorblind? It's not even possible from a biological position, right? Um, uh, the scholarship of uh, Obasogi shows that even blind people understand race, right? So there's some violence even to this very concept. So in the term, so I define colorblindness as a, constitutive technology of white supremacy that is global, structural, inherently anti-Black and fundamentally indebted to colonial discourse and liberal, and liberal humanism. So in other words, I argue that we can't even start to theorize or think about colorblindness without centering anti-Blackness and colonialism and also making sure not to conflate the two, right? Because as we know from Afro-pessimist thinkers like Jared Sexton, Sexton, sorry, colonialism is not a precondition for slavery, right? So then I historicize colorblindness in the book as a technology. I foreground the fact that it's institutionalized, but I also examine the rhetorical strategies that structure it as, as a discourse. So you can also use the book as an archive of strategies that white people have used um, to both silence racism and reproduce it. This is what I call colorblind tools, right? Strategies that at the same time mask and reproduce white domination. And these are often institutionalized, right? I write, for example, about the colorblind tool, I was afraid that police officers often use in the US, right? To, you know, justify the murder of innocent black people. And they use it not because they were really afraid. In fact, uh, you know, uh, the issue here is about black people unarmed, you know, being unarmed, being shot on the back and so on and so forth. Uh, so not because that is a fact, but because the Supreme Court case, Graham versus Connor from 1989, made fear a legitimate reason to kill someone. So, you know, so colorblind tools is institutionalized often rhetorical strategies, but also we can think of race itself as a colorblind tool, right? Um, Racialization is a dissimulation mechanism that tries to make appear normal or natural what has been produced through theft and, theft and slavery and then make that inequality reproduce further. So, yeah. 
I hope that is a good introduction to the term. There's a lot of, there's a lot of, I could say, especially because the term is so problematic, right? But I think I will send the readers to the note on method at the end of the introduction for a long discussion about the problems with the term, why I decided to use it anyway, and so on. Yes, and it's a wonderful note on method as well. Um, so the the organization of this book, so you organize this into three separate parts. Um, what went into your thought process around how to actually organize this book? You know, the organization, the structure was one of the biggest challenges in writing this book, especially because, right, it, it was this vast archive of work in so many different national contexts. And I also wanted to make sure that I write it so that everybody can understand the larger context. In other words, you don't have to be a scholar of Panamanian literature to follow the argument about Panamanian literature that I'm making, right? I'm introducing you to the argument and so on and so forth. So first of all, I'm very grateful to my developmental editor, Lara portwood Stacer, who definitely helped me with the structure. And I want to recommend scholars who, you know, have the same struggle with structure, you know, um, especially when it comes to individual chapters and especially when the book is not necessarily just chronological, right? That you go from A to B or from this country to that country, but, you know, every chapter is transnational mostly uh, to, you know, I recommend a, a developmental editor, whichever one, you know, that's my recommendation, I guess, for this conversation. But, you know, so in the in the introduction, I historicized colorblindness, right, by tracing it back to colonialism and racialized slavery. Then in the first two chapters, I continue with this historical argument, right? And then in the third, third and fourth chapters, I show how white people continue to disavow racism to maintain power in the present. And I also look at the perils of white anti-racism, right, how white texts and especially academic scholarship that appears anti-racist can you know, supports white supremacy often. And then in the last part, I examine how anti-Black and anti-Indigenous ideologies, right, which are intertwined with colorblind ideology can infiltrate even decolonial literatures and, you know, anti-racist imaginaries through a commitment to liberalism and so on. So the structure then was meant to help the argumentative arc of the book, right? Colorblindness is not new. It's a structural feature of racism that white people have deployed since the inception of the history of racism. It it is deployed across national and ideological boundaries to maintain power, but it can also infiltrate, you know, anti-racist discourses, which is why it is so insidious, right? Because it, you know, it can also appear to be an anti-racist tool, right? this thing of, yeah, but it is not, right? But it is, and because it works through so many other discourses, and that's what I show at the end of the book, how colorblindness works through categories other than race, like race itself, like gender, sexuality, or ethnicity. Um, it is just so, it's, it's like a, I, I describe it in the introduction as an octopus with so many different tentacles, right? That sometimes you don't know where the boundaries are, even of the discourse, you can never have a full archive. And, um, but, you know, with, with the book, I tried precisely to show that's also why it's so insidious. You know, where does this end and where does it start? Absolutely. It's not always clear. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, and you, I think you do a wonderful job of it. Um, so let's get specific about some of these parts. So uh, in part one, you actually sort of show that colorblindness is a white tool of, of uh, nation building that crosses sort of racial regimes and also national borders. Uh, can you unpack how in these chapters you show the international nature of colorblindness? Okay, yes. Let me speak a little bit about chapter one and chapter two as, as briefly as I can. So in chapter one, I show how the Panamanian elite in the early 20th century propelled a nation building process, right, in which they symbolically incorporated Black Panamanians into the nation state, but they kept their inclusion symbolic, right, without material benefits. And this process was constructed on the back of West Indian workers through the deployment of colorblind rhetoric. So I examined a political pamphlet uh, by Olmedo Alfaro, who was a Panamanian Ecuadorian military cadet who has studied in the United States, was a fan of Adolf Hitler, and was also you know, inspired by US and European ideas um, about you know, white supremacist ideologies, eugenics, and so on. And in 1925, he published a pamphlet called El Peligro Antillano en la América Central, The West Indian Danger in Central America, in which he argued for the expulsion of, of West Indian uh, immigrants, right? Who were the main labor force in the Panama Canal, which was you know, under US control, and were also at the forefront of the labor movement in Panama. So he paints West Indian workers as enemies of the nation, allies of US imperialism, right? To conceal white Panamanians' actual alliance with US imperialism, right? But at the same time, while he makes these overt racist arguments, right, he also disavows racism and says that his hostility against West Indians has nothing to do with anti-blackness and racism, but it's due to the fact that they're Protestant and speak English. So, sorry, their religion and, you know, and language is fundamentally different. They cannot assimilate, right, which sounds so much like a contemporary argument. In fact, this reflects like the larger discourse of the Panamanian elite at the time. You know, they were arguing like Alfaro does in his booklet that West Indians are stealing jobs from Panamanian, right? And so try to co-opt Black and Mestizo Panamanians by turning them against West Indian workers to prevent solidarity. And so you read, you know, I actually found this was one of those texts that I found at the Bancroft Library at UC Berkeley. And it really, you know, it became chapter one. It, you know, it really, I was like, no, this thing of colorblindness being new and white people are disavowing racism, this is clearly bullshit, right? Like this, 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 and also, you know, white supremacist discourse has, has never, has never been just overt or covert. These two have coexisted. The disavowal has coexisted with overt animalization of black people, right? That overt racist discourse. And this is all happening in this text. So when you read this text, it also feels so contemporary, right? Immigrants are stealing jobs. We don't want them here. And also they cannot assimilate. They're so different from us. Their religion is the problem. It's got nothing to do with the fact that they're black. That's not the reason why, you know, we want to expel them. And so in the epilogue, I write, for example, about some parallels between what happened in Panama in the early 20th century and what has happened in Italy in more recent times with the Northern League, a party that was born in the 1990s by demonizing Southern Italians, 
calling for the separation of the North from the South. Uh, but how did they become a majority party? By shifting the demonization of Southern Italians towards Black immigrants without necessarily, you know, always using overt uh, terminology, right, by making this a question of immigration and co-opting Southern Italians into voting for a party that doesn't benefit them um, to the extent that, you know, you have, they dropped the term Northern as well, right? Now you have Northern League, uh, you know, folks in the Sicilian government. And at the same time, they also began this nation building process in which Northern and Southern Italians came together around, um, you know, demonizing black people. So, you know, not just the transnational dimension, but also the, you know, transhistoric dimension of, of these discourses and how they, you know, they repeat themselves. In chapter two, then, I show instead how three very famous Latin American eugenicists, Jose Vasconcelos in Mexico, Gilberto Freire in Brazil, and Fernando Ortiz in Cuba, exported the racial technology and ideology of mestizaje outside of national boundaries and also racial boundaries to maintain power. So Jose Vasconcelos, who became famous in 1925 after having written La Raza Cosmica, The Cosmic Race, he gave a series of lectures at the University of Chicago in 1926. Among these was the race problem in Latin America, which I examine in the book. Now, what is a eugenicist who advocated for racial purity in his work uh, doing at the University of Chicago, right? Doing in the United States, the epicenter of, you know, discourses of racial purity, right? He was advocating for racial mixture. Well, he argues that U.S. Americans should themselves adopt mestizaje to maintain power and especially to control black people, as the Spanish have managed to do in Mexico. But while he says this, he also, of course, argues that the Spanish are not racist and that this mixture is itself evidence of the fact that they're not. Fernando Ortiz in 1942 delivers a talk um, to a predominantly black audience in Club Atenas in Cuba, right? In which he at the same time defends his earlier eugenicist work and then attempts to convince the black middle class in his audience that they should adopt, you know, of the validity of his theory of transculturation, which is also a theory of racial mixture that actually posits the disappearance of what, of black people, right? In a superior third, uh, third uh, something, right? Tertium quid. At the same time, well, isn't it interesting, by the way, just as an aside, that this transculturation theory is very much used by post-colonial scholars, even scholars in black studies who often do not even read, right, Ortiz's work. So fast forward to 1954, Gilberto Freire, Brazil's most famous anthropologist, is invited by the United Nations Commission on the Racial Situation in the Union of South Africa, UN course, to write a report in which he should propose solutions to eliminate racial conflicts and discriminatory practices. Presumably, that's what he was supposed to do, but he interprets this from the vantage point of whiteness and proposes solutions not to apartheid and white supremacy, but to black insurgency, right? He gives suggestions to white people all over Africa on how they can maintain their colonies in the middle of increasing decolonial revolutions. So what does he argue? Similar to Vasconcelos, he argues that white people should get rid of segregation and purity and such ideas and should mix with 
black people so as to control them better. Of course, uh, he lies about all sorts of stuff, not, not just his theory is flawed, but you know, he argues that black people in Portuguese colonies, because of mixture, are more loyal to the colonizers, which is of course a lie, and he has to erase all of these histories of, of resistance, right? And at the same time, he argues that the Portuguese are not racist, which is why this text then became a very useful propaganda tool for the Portuguese government. So what do these transnational examples then show, right? They show not only that the disavowal of racism is a transnational global strategy, right, as you were, you were asking me, but also that way people collaborate across national and ideological boundaries, which is something that I try to show in the book. Right. Steve Beagle called this the totality of the white power structure. Right. Um, how white people work together. It doesn't matter gender, ideology. Uh, when it comes to white interests, white people communicate and work together, which is what was happening during that time. And then in the following chapters, I show that it's still continuing. Yeah. And so part two then focuses on how white people today develop these colorblind, or sorry, deploy the colorblind rhetoric to halt desegregation measures and prevent redistribution of, of resources to black people and people of color across national and ideological boundaries. Uh, so can you talk to us about how white people in these various countries that you're focusing on have weaponized this rhetoric of colorblindness and also how they use their control of media, law and academia to sort of erect these obstacles to racial desegregation? Right. So in chapter three, like I already mentioned, I start with protests in South Africa, right, At, in South African universities. But I also show how the inequality uh, that we see in the South African university and school system is not an exception, but is actually the standard in former European, former, quote unquote, right, European settler colonies. Um, by also bringing in, you know, examining the case of Brazil and the United States. So, you know, I show that this inequality is not like a random residue, residue uh, sorry, of the past. Sometimes English fails me. Residue of the past, but it's the product of um, white people's investment in maintaining this inequality, right? Um, and active after active work to impede attempts to desegregate space and redistribute resources. And the tool of choice is uh, very often colorblind rhetoric that you can find across a number of texts, even beyond languages and national boundaries again. So, for example, I show that a vast body of South African scholarship, um, published especially by white scholars since 1994, demonizes affirmative action policies, minimizes racism, or, you know, disavows it altogether. And I also examined the 2007 case, parents involved in community schools versus Seattle school district number one, in which the U.S. Supreme Court struck down an attempt to desegregate schools in Seattle and Jefferson County. Again, relying on, you know, similar colorblind discourses of merit and, you know, not historicizing, um, for example. And then I study Brazil journalist uh, Ali Kamel's book, Now Somos Racistas, We Are Not Racist, from 2006, which I just mentioned, 
which demonizes the adoption of racial quotas in Brazilian universities and how interesting that it is thought. I mean, uh, friends of mine who mentioned that they read this book, it was actually in communication studies and across different classes, by the way, right? So as an example of, you know, some kind of masterful journalism. So what is striking here is that these texts use similar rhetorical a similar rhetorical arsenal, basically, grounded in the disavowal of racism, you know, and the deployment of these colorblind tools of discourses of merits, fairness, or the demonization of racial categories per se, right? Which you can see in all of these texts, although, for example, Gamel, he demonizes the category black, we shouldn't use it, but the category pardo, right, which, which you know, a, a good translation would be brown or, or mixed, neither of them are really very good translations, but the cat category pardo is not called into question, that is a good category that presumably can, presumably can capture the essence of, you know, the Brazilian population. In other words, what he's trying to make disappear is the fact that there's white people in Brazil, and that they have power, right? Like himself and so on and so forth. So I try to show that this rhetorical convergence and also the institutionalization of colorblind rhetoric in academia, in the media, and you know, in the law is not accidental again, right? But it's, it's, it's a tactic, yeah. And so while the other parts of the of your uh this work sort of show how pervasive this colorblind ideology as tool of rhetoric is, part three actually looks at how it infiltrates even decolonial uh literary imaginaries, right? So how exactly does this colorblind uh, ideology, t uh, technologies, tools, however you would want to describe it, how does it actually infiltrate these spaces in writing? And what does it show us about sort of how pervasive, how pervasive this ideology actually is? Mm, thank you so much for that question. Yeah, so in the last section, I examine, so in chapter five, I examine literary works uh, by uh, one of Panama's uh, most important writers, Afro-Panamanian writer Carlo Guillermo Wilson, uh, who chose the nom Cubena for himself. And so that's what I will use myself. And in chapter six, I examine works by Chicana feminist writers Graciela Limon and Cherry Moraga, right? So Kubina's work, um, so remember in chapter one, I talk about the demonization of West Indian immigrants, right? His work centrally challenges this demonization. Um, he pushes against this myth of racial har harmony. You know, he makes clear that Panama is a, you know, a white supremacist nation um, and pushes against discourses uh, that have portrayed West Indians as unassim unassimilable, right? But what, uh, what happens there in the process? In the process, Kubena capitulates to liberal individualism, right? Portraying West Indians as a sort of model minority that is invested in building the nation. So he ends up actually being wedded to nationalism, right? So instead of making visible how the nation, as Rinaldo Walcott writes, is a place of death for black people, right? At the same time, he argues that it's necessary for black people to come together, right? To, you know, he his works try to foster unity across black people, which he argues is central for overcoming white supremacy. But then the works are deeply homophobic so that they exclude LGBTQ people from the black community that he is envisioning. So, well, what does this show? For once that, of course, liberalism and heteropatriarchy are fundamentally at odds with the goal of challenging racism, right? 
but they also show how colorblindness works through category other than race, such as ethnicity and, and sexuality, right? And so, you know, you can end up uh, colluding, you know, with the discourses you're trying to challenge through an investment um, in, in heteropatriarchy and, 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 you know, and liberalism. So in chapter six, you know, I argue that Chicana indigenous imaginaries, and by which I mean literary imaginaries that represent indigenous peoples, symbols, or histories. So not necessarily Chicana literature in general, right? Um, but anyways, Chicana indigenous imaginaries in which there is a collapse in which the Chicana subject and the indigenous subject are basically collapsed, right? In which the Chicana self and the indigenous other are one and the same, reproduce the logics of white feminism and dominant multiculturalism that they aim to challenge. And at the same time, they display a pernicious anti-blackness, which ends up being reproduced, by the way, also in Kubena's work, right? Um, I will just send the, the, the reader to chapter five. It's, you know, it, it will take me long now to explain it, but, you know. So to give you uh, a, a more close examples from uh, chapter six. So I examine Graciela Limon's novel, Erased Faces, which tells the story of Adriana Mora, who is an Afro-Chicana photographer who goes to the Lacandon jungle, so in Mexico's Chiapas, uh, to photograph indigenous women in the midst of a burgeoning Zapatista uprising, right? So we might think that the protagonist's blackness will aid the novel in putting forth the critique of anti-blackness. But the opposite is the case because Adriana, Adriana's blackness is merely, you know, a marker, a symbolic marker of injury that actually serves to construct her as innocent. So in a similar way in which Forrest Gump's injury in the film makes him an innocent, presumably an innocent bystander, right, in the midst of the civil rights movement, or Jake Sully's wheelchair and avatar allegedly makes him a good person. So the colorblind tool here is the absolution through injury, with blackness being the ultimate marker of injury and therefore a conduit, right? Con conducer, is that the right word? To innocence, right? But at the same time, like Jake Sully, Adriana is also posited as a savior in the novel, right? And uh, this inequality between her and, you know, she sleeps uh, on, a, on a palapa and everybody, you know, under a roof, everybody else sleeps on, on hammocks and the novel never problematizes that inequality, right? Instead, she's posited as a savior. And then at the same time, the novel posits homosexuality as an equalizer that presumably can erase differences between Adriana and the Lacandon character that she enters a relationship with. This is also similar in Cherry Moraga's The Hungry Woman, which is a play that I also examine in which Savannah, who is the only black character in the play, is made to disavow racism and enforce colorblindness. And so what's going on here, right? So these kinds of appropriations of blackness are actually common in white feminism. But here we have the colonial literature that is precisely trying to write against um, that problematic feminism, but it ends up reproducing some of the same logics, right? For also in deploying homosexuality as a presumed equalizer that Gloria Anzaldúa herself, by the way, and many other, not just herself, but, you know, 
other Chicana theorists have written against, but there is a disjunction between theory and the practice of the liter of, of uh, in literary practice. And at the same time, the works also reproduce these, you know, racist representations of indigenous people. And there is here also an epistemology of disavowal, right? Chicano, Mexican, and Mexican American complicity with slavery is never you know, made visible, for example. So what do we learn about colorblindness here is, again, that it is fundamentally entangled with colonial discourse and anti-blackness. You can't, you won't have colorblindness that is not also entangled with anti-blackness and goes back to a discourse that we've had, you know, for centuries, right? And images, uh, representational strategies that go back to colonialism, right? And so, and another thing that we can learn from, you know, examining these texts is that it's necessary, necessary to think intersectionally and relationally about race, right? As racial positionality is also shaped by ethnicity, class, education, which are categories that Chicana feminism often overlooks in trying to construct an equivalence between the Chicanx and the indigenous subject, right? And so this also means that racial positionality, right, which is another thing obscured in these texts, um, right, Adriana Mora goes to the Mexican jungle and there is, you know, her blackness is supposed to make her equal to the indigenous characters who tell her, no, no, we trust you, you two have suffered, right? But in reality, what would be necessary there would be thinking about racial positionality can shift, right, so that a person coming from the U.S. can actually, you know, inhabit uh, the privileged positionality of a white person in Mexico if she was not black, right? Then you would have to, um, the novel might have to contend with that privilege of, of Adriana, but it cannot because it, it, it has constructed her as black precisely to avoid those complications. Because, right, there is an exception to this shift in positionality, which is, you know, Frank Wilderson says only black people migrate from one place to the next, remaining on the same plantation, right? It doesn't matter the national context. And this is also true in radical Chicana feminist imaginaries in which blackness also often remains the locus of appropriation and objection, right? And I think to conclude here, this brings me to a larger argument of the book, and I think, as I've already mentioned, all of the texts I examine in the book are anti-Black, right? So what the book then ultimately also supports is Afro-pessimist readings of anti-Blackness as central to the identity formation of all non-Black people, right? But at the same time, the book also makes visible how white people nonetheless remain the central agents and beneficiaries of white supremacy and anti-Blackness, which is maybe sometimes obscured in, in Afro-pessimist uh, theory and, and discourse, right? And this, um, you know, uh, discourse of, you know, white people and, and, and allies, right? But um, I, I still try to center white people as central to this reproduction, and especially when it comes to the benefits of, of whiteness, of, of white supremacy and anti-blackness. And what sort of audience did you imagine for this work? Yeah, so as I said earlier, you know, I try to write the work so uh, that it's accessible. 
somebody told me, um, somebody who, who invited me to speak about the book told me, oh, I really enjoyed your book. It, it, it didn't feel like an academic text. And I'm like, okay, that's great, right? She's, <laughs> so that's, you know, I, I wanted to write in a language and also explain things in a way that, that they're accessible. But clearly it remains a scholarly book with a vast bibliography and with, you know, the conventions of a scholarly text and probably also the jargon of a scholarly text. I mean, the very usage of the term colorblind, you know, for example. So, you know, I hoped that it would be interesting to scholars across different fields because it transcends so many different fields. So Black studies, Latin American studies, Chicanx studies, Latinx studies more broadly. Um, but also I was hoping that, you know, even outside, you know, even more traditional fields that it would also, you know, cross. Um, disciplinary boundaries further in literary studies. I am in conversation with sociologists and fighting with sociologists. They might never read my book, but I'm talking to them. Sociologists read my book. <laughs> History, you know, historians, anthropologists as well. Uh, but at the same time, you know, in making visible these mechanisms of racial disavowal and reproduction, and how anti-racism can also collude with racism, right? I hope that it can also be useful to uh, folks outside of academia, you know, activists, organizers, people who are concerned with racism in general, you know. So, yeah. And what do you want readers to take away from your book? Ooh, that is, so, that is, you know, I find that a difficult question, right? Because I'm not sure that there is, you know, one thing, of course, one hopes many different things uh, will be taken away from the book, hopefully useful ones. But, you know, on the one, so for once, let me start from the basics. So the book makes a strong case for how white supremacy continues to shape, you know, all facets of life across four continents, uh, you know, right, for four continents, really. Um so disavowing racism, it, you know, it doesn't make it go away, but rather the opposite. So I want readers who are maybe not yet aware of these global ramifications of white supremacy and anti-blackness to become aware. And those who are already aware and are invested, right, in, in, in studying racism and understanding racism or, um, you know, in, in anti-racist work, um, to have additional tools uh, to tackle the racism and the disavowal that it depends upon, right? And when it comes to specific, the specific scholarly fields, of course, you know, when it comes to scholars as an audience, I would, so, you know, I would hope that scholars can give up after reading the book, This Obsession with Change, and pay closer attention to history. I'm speaking to sociologists again, but not exclusively. And even, you know, even in scholars in, in, in literary studies as well, who continue to consider racism as extraneous to the discipline, right? Or historians who, who often think that history is somehow like a, a ideology free endeavor, right? It's the archives. We are just, you know, they're speaking <laughs> and so on, right? So, yeah. And I finally, maybe I would also like scholars to move away from being committed to uh, the myth of white ignorance, which of course is a theory developed by Charles Mills, who I respect enormously, but I do have a beef with this particular theory, right? Which posits that white people are fundamentally ignorant about racism. But Colorblind Tools, my book shows that 
white people know well, we know well what we are doing and we are working together to uphold racism and we perform a particular kind of ignorance. Of course, we don't want everybody to know that we understand very well what we're doing, right? Um, but yeah, to, to think more about disavowal, to think more about investment, to think more about historical continuity uh, and to think transnationally as well. So these are like the scholarly hopes for the book, I suppose. Well, Dr. Malazzo, we've taken up a lot of your time. Thank you for being so generous uh, with your time and with this wonderful book. Uh, so I'll, I'll ask you sort of one last question here. Uh, what are you working on now? Yeah, thank you so much. Really, actually, this was a pleasure. Thank you for your time, uh, really. Right now, I am uh, working on a book on South African literature after this, you know, huge transnational project that I have decided to zoom in uh, to contemporary um, post-apartheid uh, literature, especially fiction, in a work that is still tentatively, you know, it has a tentative title, which is um, Darkening Rainbow, Post-Apartheid Writing and the Politics of Race, in which I am specifically thinking about how Blame and questions of responsibility are, uh, you know, treated in South African literature with the main emphasis on, on young black writers. You read a lot of South African texts and you see many black characters blaming themselves, you know, for their own poverty, um, blaming themselves for all sorts of things, right? The narrator of Copano Matra's period pain, the novel opens with... Uh, this young uh, teenager having endometriosis, you know, she, she's bleeding profusely. She blames herself. Maybe it's because I killed a white boy. Uh, sorry, I killed. <laughs> that was my furniture because I kissed a white boy. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> because I kissed a white boy. So what is going on with, 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 with the blame and responsibility in these novels, right? And then you read white fiction and there's a lot of disavowing responsibility for colonialism and its legacies. So, the book is trying to grapple with some of these complexities in contemporary South African writing. Yeah. Wow. That sounds amazing. Yeah. I, I will definitely look out for it. I'm sure a lot of the listeners will as well. That sounds really fascinating. Uh, well, Dr. Malato, I want to just thank you again for being on the show today. Uh, I really enjoyed our conversation. I really enjoyed the book. I hope that people go out and uh, and read this. I think it's, it's a wonderful, wonderful uh, work. Uh, well, thank you again and take care. Thank you. Thank you so much. Bye-bye.